It's Super Bowl weekend. What are you rooting for? Just kidding. Welcome to the uh, backstage of Disrupt TV. And uh, more importantly, welcome because we've got our awesome co-host and co-founder Val Ashar, our producer L, but more importantly, our amazing guests. So who do we have to start today? Well, tell me where you are and what you're calling in from. So Jeremy, what are you talking about today and where are you calling in from? Hey, Jeremy Utley here, co-author of Idea Flow, new book by Penguin Portfolio, the only business metric that matters, joining from Mountain View, California. Oh, very, very cool. Miguel, where are you calling in from, coming in from? What are you talking about today? Yeah, okay, good to see you guys again um, and be back. I'm calling in from San Jose today. You know how I am on the road all the time, but- uh, San Jose where? In, yeah, yeah, San Jose, California, right? Dude, you're like uh, next door to my house. Uh, We're gonna catch up. <laughs> you guys could be, you guys could be side about, by side right now. I know. I actually thought about that. I could have done it, you know, side, in the chair. You next done it right here, dude. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll talk later. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. No, it's great to be here. I'm um, a chief experience officer and founding partner at a new app called Simplicity that is helping cities change the way they engage with the public and kind of transform um, the way that service is delivered and the way that the public is engaged. So um, as you know, my journey kind of is a long and, and crooked one all over the place, different backgrounds. So happy to talk about all of that and how it's culminated into what we're doing now. But uh, good to see you guys again. Awesome, man. We're getting lunch, man. Back to you, Al. <laughs> all right. Three, two, one. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Val Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guests, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World. He's on TV every day. I see him on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, CNBC, Bloomberg. In my opinion, he's one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with Vala Ashtar. He's not only the chief digital evangelist for Salesforce, he's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. Executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational, insightful tweets. And when he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg, posting insightful analyses on ZDNet, speaking at Salesforce events, and of course, evangelizing and putting some goodness in the world in his tweets. So, uh, but it's not about us. It's about our amazing guests. And who do we have to kick it off today? 
Talk about putting goodness in the world. One of our favorite guests is back on Disrupt TV. Miguel Camino is Chief Experience Officer and Founding Partner at Simplicity. Simplicity is a local social network accessible only to city communities, public agencies, and people living within cities. No ads, no personal data, no misinformation. It's available only to verified city communities and organizations. And it's changing cities one, one city at a time. Miguel was executive vice president at MasterCard, responsible for enterprise partnerships, head of global cities. This man knows a lot about cities <laughs> and city possible, leading public transit and urban mobility at MasterCard City Key, MasterCard City Insights and Digital Doors. For nearly eight years, he's been leveraging innovation and technology to create better lives for people. He did that when he was the chief information officer for city of El Paso, chief information officer for city of San Francisco, and chief digital officer for New York City. So talk about some of the biggest cities in the world, and, and he has been innovating and improving the lives of citizens. He's also a startup advisor. He's an investor. He's a public speaker, an award-winning technologist. Great follow on Twitter, obviously early adopter. He got his name, Miguel Gamino, M-I-G-U-E-L-G-A-M. I-N-O. Welcome back, Miguel, to Disrupt TV. Thanks, guys. It's great to be here. Always fun to hang out with you uh, in person or online. Either way, it's, it's always a good time. I love it in person because usually we're breaking bread at pretty awesome restaurants. So Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, got, we do. We have a reputation to, to uh, maintain for sure. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so, hey, we're so excited to have you here. I think, you know, we want to take a step back. You know, let's talk about the stuff you did at MasterCard and work our way towards all the new stuff that you're doing now. What did you do at MasterCard? How do you put data into use? How do you empower communities? How do you get these cities all, you know, excited about what's what the future is? So let's start there. Yes. I mean, the, the MasterCard uh, journey was a spectacular one. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of work. Um, it was entirely global in nature and very much focused on inclusivity. So everything we were doing for cities was about helping all people kind of everywhere across the, the strata in cities everywhere in the world. We ended up building uh, the program called City Possible that was 400 and plus cities worldwide that were part of that in, in different ways. And we leveraged uh, the technology and the resources, expertise, including data, um, but even well beyond that at MasterCard to help cities figure out different ways to solve some of their biggest challenges. And, you know, we, we did things uh, particularly during the COVID time uh, that we've talked about, you know, offline that were, I think, very important to the recovery and even kind of the, the sustaining of some of those communities during really, really tough times. Um, but all that informed what's turned into, you know, a really um, uh, valuable but impactful and meaningful business at MasterCard they uh, engage still with cities and governments of all levels in ways that they didn't, you know, uh, five or six years ago. So it's been, it was, that was a really important phase for me to figure out how to leverage, you know, enterprise resources, culture, an opportunity to, to bring it back to those cities environments where, you know, I was on the other side of the table previously mm -hmm. trying to scrape things together and solve problems and, with, with no lack of innovation or energy or attitude, but sometimes you just didn't have either the capacity, um, the resources, sometimes just, you know, the systems itself, you know, made it really hard for us to do what seemed to be obvious. And with private sector partners, 
like MasterCard and others, um, some of those things were finally able to be accomplished. So it, it really served to inform for me and, and for a lot of others, I think, the, the real value of those private-public par private partnerships that could deliver real impact. Miguel, you're very, very humble about this. So how many cities did you have when you started? When we started City Possible? Yep. Uh, zero. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you have 400 cities in a network focused on sustainable and inclusive urban development, right? And, and support. I mean, yeah. that was incredible. And you did that in how many years? That was about four, about four years. I mean, that's, that's give or take. Yeah. Onboarding yeah. 100 cities per year. That's when I first met you. Chief Information Officer in San Francisco, and then and then you accepted a role as Chief Digital Officer in New York City. And when we talk about the population, the demand, the, the intensity of leading digital transformation for New York City, I mean, you're talking about leading transformation for country, uh, the size of the population, the demand. And then you join a, an incredibly large corporation, and you're a big deal. I mean, you're executive vice president. You have budget, you have influence, you have power, um, and then you leave. So can you tell us, <laughs> like, you know, I mean, I, I, as someone who works for a big corporation and just like you, I love where I work. I, I'm trying to think about like what would have to present itself to me for me to leave my company. And it would have to be something beautiful, uh, you know, yeah. something that just stretches my imagination and, and really gets me excited. So tell us, that whole process of a big deal at MasterCard yep. deciding to leave. Yeah. Well, thank you for all of that. That's, it's very uh, humbling to hear you say that. Well, um, it's, you know, it, it, uh, look, I think part of it is just my DNA. I'm a, I'm a, I have, I'm a creator and I have that itch. And so that is just what it is. Um, when I, when I met the guys at Simplicity, um, I'm not, so here's how the story goes. We, we met, um, I saw it as an opportunity even to be, uh, partnered with what we were doing at MasterCard potentially, yeah. but then I saw even greater potential, uh, almost immediately. I'm telling you in the first meeting in about 15 minutes, we were talking about what simplicity could be, uh, even well beyond where they had already kind of written the, or, or drawn the roadmap. And I think we hit it off and it was just one of those things where it was fantastic opportunity um, and really good timing. And uh, I saw the, the opportunity to, you know, I had what they didn't and they had what I didn't, so wow. to speak. And so there was a very important element of that personal relationship where we not only got along, but we had, you know, uh, complementary strengths and yeah. weaknesses or what have you. Um, but all trying to do the same thing, which is find ways to use technology to quite literally change the world one city at a time. And so I just, I was struck by it. Um, I, you know, I had that itch. And so I decided to scratch it. <laughs> and, um, and it's been, it's been uh, a fantastic change. Um, no less work, but yeah. different. Right. And so uh, it feels really good to be working with these guys um, and the whole team and uh, the conversations we're having with cities about the impact that we can have. You could see them light up just the way that I did when I first was introduced to it. And so, um, you know, it's it's catching fire. I joined um, just months ago, not even a year ago yet. 
and we already have cities across the country, almost 50 cities across the country using the platform, um, including New York City and L.A. and Austin and Denver and St. Louis and, you know, some key cities and, and a lot of smaller cities, right? Basically, every town around us uh, in the Bay Area is using the, um, the platform. Uh, so it's been, you know, a real important to be able to bring that technology also similar to the way that we did at MasterCard in an inclusive way, right? This isn't just for big cities. It's not just for small cities because big cities already have something else. We're really able to leverage this in a, in, in a value, in a valuable way to cities across that stratosphere, the same way that we did with what we did at MasterCard. And so that's, that's part of it. That's really important to me is to be able to um, offer something that isn't just, you know, just for big cities or just for cities with a parking problem or just for cities with a pothole problem. Like we are really able to, to, to stretch across what those cities are trying to do. And so right now it's an inf mostly an information platform um, that is letting, as, as you said, on the, on the intro vol by the way, you're hired. That's brilliant intro. That's why you're the master. You're the master marketer. <laughs> I'm going to take a recording of this later. Just write that down and say that every time because um, you did it masterfully, but it is, it's, it's helping cities communicate with the public without, you know, the noise or distraction or misinformation that comes from some of the, the other channels that they are required to use. And we'll get into more of that later, but, but what we're really building is a platform for city engagement and service delivery. So we already have different features that are more functional features that cities can take advantage of to deliver better experiences to the public. So net net in the big picture, that's where we, where we really want to end up is serving as that platform for, for delighting the public in their experience with local government. I love that. I yeah. love that. It's in your DNA. I mean, your whole career has been aligned to servant leadership and improving people's quality of life. So I can see how you, but Ray, before you ask your question, because I want to learn more about simplicity, but just, I just have a quick follow-up. Given the nature of what's happening in the tech industry where in the last six months, where you've had exceptional folks like yourself choosing to leave companies, in addition to exceptional senior executives who were forced to leave companies. What advice do you give them in terms of adjusting from leaving big jobs like yourself from big companies and then joining startups? Like what's the, what's the, obviously, you know, humility, beginner's mindset, yeah. but you don't have an admin, maybe you don't have a corner office. You don't have, <laughs> you know, I mean, all the perks yeah. of being an EVP at MasterCard, you know, I'm assuming they're not quite there. Maybe they are. I don't know, but you are at a startup. So, so how did you, like, what's in what advice do you have? We're back to red roof ends uh, and, uh, you yeah, know. big guns like yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's a, actually a great question, Vala, because it's a, it is a real kind of, um, element of the life impact, right? People look at your LinkedIn and they see the changes and they, they just imagine you, you know, in that setting and they don't always realize or, or understand the impact it has on other, you know, your whole life. Right. I, I personally, you know, I, I was a startup guy first and then I was in government and then I was in enterprise. So for me, it's a little different because it's a, it's a return, not a, not a brand new thing, mm -hmm. but I yep. will say um, it is an adjustment. Just as you said, Bala, you know, I, I, I don't have an assistant. 
I, I book my own flights, but there are no fewer flights, you know? So, so in some ways, like I said, it's, it's different, but it's the same. Um, and, you know, I, I feel frankly, that kind of chaotic energy and of startup. So I think it is also real important to be mindful of who you really are and what you're really biting off before you go do it. Cause the idea of a startup and, you know, being part of creating something that goes unicorn and goes IPO and, you know, you know, we all aspire to have great success, but the road is different yeah. for sure. Right. There's not quarterly stock. Yeah. I mean, there's not quarterly meetings, the quarterly stock stuff that he's talking about. I mean, these things are all pretty much like, you know, it really depends. Right. So, you know, yeah. It's certainly part of it is the safety net of traded. There's not, yeah. you know, as you said. Yeah. So, Sorry, yeah, no, no. I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah, so, 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 yeah. So I think, you know, it is about, um, Yeah. I mean, startups are really tough follow. I mean, when we see that happen, it's like, you know, you've got, you know, you know, create, you got to start from the beginning and, and build from that. So, are you, can you hear me now? Yeah. Um, you're back now. So welcome. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, so yeah, so I think it's, it is about just being clear about what you're working on, right. And what you're working towards. And if that energizes you, then the rest is worth it. Right. But the biggest difference is structure versus chaos, right? In a startup, <laughs> if the if the floor needs sweeping and you're closest to the broom, guess who's doing the sweeping, right? Okay. There's not this hierarchy of yeah. this is my job and my role and I'm an EVP and you're this level and you know that that goes right out the window day one. And so well, I think it was never that with to, you anyway. So <laughs> nothing. <changed. laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's why I say me, my personality is it, I'm, I'm built for it. What I'm saying is people considering it need to like really be introspective, you know, assess their own yeah. um, strengths, weaknesses, tolerances, right. you know, yeah. and appetite for doing whatever it takes. Cause if, if you're not willing to do whatever it takes in the startup world, then it's going to be, it's going to be a long days. <laughs> It'll be a pretty bad surprise on that end. But hey, you know, you're, you're hitting a really important part, right? I mean, I won't call out the other apps, right? There's some neighborhood app that everybody's on that's become a cesspool of everything. And and I think that's what cities are facing. Uh, you know, I, I'm on the planning commission here in Cupertino. I've uh, been the chair twice, the vice chair, right? And it's just, it's hard getting information out. Like citizens are just not engaged. They've tuned out all types of information. The WhatsApp groups are bigger. The line groups are bigger. The WeChat groups are lower. I mean, they're bigger than anything else, right? And and just getting information out to, to people like in a way is, is very hard. Uh, talk a little bit more about that, like how technology has changed people's views on this, how technology is helping uh, with that. Disinformation is a really big piece that people are constantly worried about. Uh, and, and it really does depend. Like, I mean, I mean, disinformation. I mean, I watch four news channels every day and I could tell you that the U.S. looks like four different countries all the time. I mean, it's just bizarre, right? You know, and, and somewhere yeah, in between yeah. is the truth and, it, and it's getting very, very hard. So um, I think that, yeah, I mean, before even meeting the Simplicity guys, I was really frustrated with it, even just in the cable news environment. So we, we won't pick on the other social media platforms, at least not yet. <laughs> but you know, you could absolutely raise. You said if you watch two, if you watch one channel for a week, 
and watched a different channel the next week, you th- you'd think you're living in a completely different country. Yep. Right. And so that actually, I think, has e- even deeper impact on some of the pl- the digital, the online platforms, because it's almost it's it's more constant and more subconscious. Right. You're not like consciously tuning into one, you know, the conservative channel or the liberal channel. Right. Like their brands have become at least somewhat identified. So at least when you turn that channel on, you kind of have a, a filter, at least if you're paying attention, right? But some of these other platforms that espouse to be neutral, but then perhaps are not, or um, are, su- are susceptible, even if it's not the platform itself, but the platform is susceptible to other people manipulating it, right? And it's like this trickle impact where people are getting this misinformation, but but it's like the frog in the pot of water. It's it's warming up really slowly and so slowly people don't realize it. Next mm. thing you know, they've got this belief system that's been like dripped on them over time. Um, and, and, and sometimes it's not even based in fact and truth. And so I think, you know, on the information part of what Simplicity is doing is we're, we're just saying, look, the government is has authority and has accountability every election cycle theoretically there's accountability for what they say do etc so all we're doing is giving them the mic let them use the mic the way that they see fit and let them you know reap the the benefits or consequences or what have you right we we don't manipulate uh, at all we're not we don't editorialize we don't even apply algorithm to the news feed so we don't manipulate what you see Uh, you what what is posted is what you get and there's no public commenting or public posting to alter or manipulate or divert any of that messaging. So as you said on the Intravala, the government, the official government entities uh, are able to publish just like they have, a th- you know, they are the ones who can publish on their websites. The problem is the websites, you know, aren't always getting read when they need to be read. Nope. Right? It's not a place to post you know, emergency notice, if people don't go to that site, they're not necessarily prompted for that emergency notice. So we're kind of blending the best of both worlds, which is the authoritative voice in a modern, um, you know, reachable uh, uh, platform. And so that's, that really is what it is. And so we've seen a lot of, uh, when you, when we tell that to people in government, they lean forward in their chair. Um, And you can tell even, if they hadn't consciously thought about it, you can tell that they've been thinking about it, um, that it's something that is important to them. I'll also tell you that our users, if you, if you download simplicity today, which I highly encourage everybody to do, it's uh, simplicity in the app store, or Google play. Um, you are literally four taps and you're on in your in, um, you download the app. We ask you for some interests like, you know, are you interested in public safety? Sure. Uh, parks and rec or whatever. Um, and then we ask you to you pick your the city you want to follow. We ask you if you want to turn on notifications and if you want to turn on location and then you're in. Wow. You notice I never said, a, I, ne- I didn't ask you for your name, your email address, a username, a password, you know, your, your mother's maiden name and your blood type. Any yeah, that, yeah, yeah, right? yeah. That's awesome. So it's when, when we talk about accessibility and true inclusivity, I don't know how to be more more clear about it than that. Now, as we deliver other service later, some of those additional services obviously require 
sure. you to be identified. Right. If you want to use the app to pay a parking ticket or something like that, that's, that is going to require other information. But then it's your choice, right? Then you're going to make a choice to give some personal information in exchange for the, the, the experience that we're going to provide for you, whether it's paying a parking ticket or what have you. So that, that doesn't exist in those other platforms either. And so, you know, there's people who are entitled to, to receive this public information who don't want to create an account on one of those other platforms. Wow. And so we're, we're also solving some of that. And so you've seen some comms directors and some elected officials in, in government, even the CTO types, again, their eyes open up like, wow, we didn't think, <laughs> where, where's that been? We had one CIO, you'll love this. We had one CIO we talked to um, a couple days ago. And he said, when we talked about the whole platform, he said, I've been dreaming about this for eight years. And finally, someone has offered wow. what, what, we, what we've been wanting to do. So that was a great testimonial in its own right in a <laughs> private conversation. I right? just awesome. feel like we're, we're delivering something that they really need. That's, that's terrific. Uh, I, my last question to you, and again, I love the fact that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's accuracy, inclusivity, frictionless interaction that reduces time to value. That's, that, everyone's looking for that. So kudos for 100%. creating that platform. Uh, you're a technologist at heart, so you've invested in emerging technologies your entire career. When you think about, the, and you're investing in these emerging technologies. So, you know, just quickly, your thoughts about Metaverse, Web3, and certainly in the last few months, generative AI. Of all these technologies, where do you see the promise that's most impactful for cities and citizens? So, I mean, yeah, generative AI is going to be important in various use cases, I think, um, in, in both in, in local government and in just regular life. I think to your question about kind of the meta and metaverse and web three environments, the, the way I describe it is, um, you know, I'm a technologist, something of a futurist thinking about where these things go, but I would never hold myself out to be able to predict what the, where the real impact is going to manifest. Um, and so I describe it like, you know, when it comes to web three and the, the prospect of all of that stuff, it's like we're dealing with AOL uh, instant messenger in the early days of the internet. Yeah. Back yeah. then, the th you guys are really, really smart, really, really smart. But I doubt any one of the three of us would have back then predicted something like Netflix. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. um, if, if we did, then we'd all be on this show talking about something different. <laughs> right. And so, so I, think, I think it's similar. I think there is good value, just like there was in the early days of the internet with things like email, there's good value in cryptocurrency and other uses of the blockchain and the, and the web three environment, generally speaking, and the use of NFTs for credentialing. And I'm really, really big on, the, on that. It has to have actual utility. We've seen the meme yeah. coins blow up. I'm not yeah. sad about that per, per se. I think that we need to be focused on where it drives actual use and utility and value, but those things are still somewhat to be discovered for a couple of reasons. One, we just need, more and more smart people working on these, yeah. on these, you know, these things. And then the technology itself has to evolve, right? Netflix was impossible in the 9,600 baud version of the internet. <laughs> so as the technology improves, so does the opportunity to use it. And so I firmly believe it's here to stay. I firmly believe that it's going to drive more and more utility and different ways of solving problems, just the way that the, the first version of the internet gave us that same opportunity. 
I think that things like the obvious things and then short term are digital records, deeds, you know, titles and deeds oh, yeah. and things like that. that permitting, really, titles. Yeah. Right. So we're having those conversations about using NFT for, for uh, digital credentials for things like that, that are secure records, but that belong in the, in, in the public realm. I mean, that is the opportunity, particularly with government is that it has to be secure. It also by law has to be public. So if the blockchain was built for anybody, it seems to me that it was built oh, for government to maintain oh. security, but also maintain transparency and, and public access. So um, we're, we're working all of those things into our technology at simplicity, but we're also, you know, I'm, I'm also very interested just in a, on a personal front on where those things go and spending a good bit of time thinking about uh, how, how the, the overall web three world will positively impact government and, and, and beyond. Wow, we're moving from Gov two to Gov three, maybe Gov four at the rate you're going. Yeah. Miguel Gamino, right. Chief Experience Officer and Founding Partner at Simplicity, dude, you're coming over to the house if you've got time. I'll, I'll send you details. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right, man. Take care and thanks. Right. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Go ahead. It's right around the corner from you. I know. What's <laughs> up? Wait, who else is right around the corner? Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's I feel I'm the only East Coast representative from Boston. Jeremy Utley, author of Idea Fellow. Jeremy is one of the world's leading experts on innovation. He's the director of executive education at D School and adjunct professor at Stanford School of Engineering, where he has earned, Ray, listen to this, multiple favorite professor yes. uh, distinctions in the graduate program. I love that. I, I, that that's awesome. Jeremy's also general partner at Freespin Capital and co-author of Idea Flow, the only business metric that matters. He's the host of D-School's wildly popular program, Stanford's Masters of Creativity. He's, uh, he's, he can be, he can be, you can follow Jeremy on Twitter at Jeremy Utley, J-E-R-E-M-Y-U-T-L-E-Y. Welcome, Jeremy, to Disrupt TV. Thanks. Great to have you. We're so excited to have you, right? Anyone from the D-School is usually super brilliant, super creative, right brain, left brain, bring all that together. And you've got this awesome book about like the only metric that matters. And, and I really want to dig into that. And I think we're going to drop, drop into this pretty deeply about what it is, why you're jumping into this, and of course, like how it all works. So start with that. Right? What is IdeaFlow? And why is that so important uh, inside organizations? Because we usually measure around revenue. We measure around you know, EBITDA. We measure around like number of patents, right? But you've got something that's a little bit more important because it starts as a first principle. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you think about um, all the ways that we're measuring our organizations, you said it right, revenue, EBITDA, productivity, increasingly white collar workers are being measured more and more minutely. And yet nobody is going to the spigot, so to speak, the, the source of all this stuff, which is new solutions. You know, every solution starts as an idea. And so idea flow, simply put, is the number of solutions you can generate at a given time to any problem. And very few people realize this, but the research has been clear for a long time. The primary determinant of the quality of your solutions is actually the quantity of your solutions. And so while many business leaders and professionals are looking to implement good ideas, what they need to do first is actually generate lots of ideas. And that is a function of idea flow, a, a system and a method by which you can generate lots of ideas and quickly through rapid experimentation, determine which of those lots are worth implementing. I'll pause there. 
Now you write in your book, so much advice around innovation and creativity amounts to more, more methods, more habits, more techniques. If you don't simultaneously carve away less important uses of our time to create space for reflection and contemplation, distance from problem at hand, yeah. we only undermine the effort to boost idea flow. And in the book, you also talk about creativity and, that, and you argue that creativity can be learned yeah. and turned into a daily practice. As someone who was a, had the privilege of being a people manager for many, many years in my career, early on, I would have argued against ability to teach creativity. Interesting. Um, I, you know, I just felt like uh, that. You, you He's an engineer by training. Yeah, I'm a double. You know, <laughs> what, what did I know early yeah. in my career? <laughs> no, no, I'm a, I'm a recovering MBA. I mean, I'm a spreadsheet junkie, financial <laughs> yeah, analyst, yeah. right? But I mean, but it comes down honestly, volatile. What's your definition of creativity? I think for a lot of leaders, if you say, "Hey, how?" If they say, "I want to draw out the creativity of my team," what they mean, or they don't realize that they don't mean, but they believe is artistry. Creativity is artistry. And frankly, I agree with you. Not everybody is artistic. That's fine. That's not what I mean when I say creativity. My favorite definition, well, I've got a few, um, oh. but my, one of my favorite definitions of creativity comes from a seventh grader in Ohio. She said, yeah. creativity is doing more than the first thing you think of. That's brilliant. It's brilliant for a couple of reasons. Wow. One, it has no reference to the arts, which is true. Wow. And two, it actually speaks to a deeply held cognitive bias that plagues us all called the Einstein effect. And the Einstein effect goes back to the 1940s with Abraham Luchens at the lab. And then Carl Dunker validated it. Researchers at Oxford have validated it more recently. The basic premise, I call it the anti-Einstein effect. But the <laughs> Einstein effect is the tendency of a human being to fixate on a solution. So when you, are, uh, when you encounter a problem, you fixate on one answer. And two things have been demonstrated empirically to happen. One, you cease the search for other solutions. Despite the fact, by the way, that there's no evidence that suggests the first idea that comes to mind is the best. And two, <laughs> more worrisome, you actually become blinded to better ideas. Mm. So why do I love this girl's definition, the seventh grader's definition? I love it. Creativity is doing more. It's pushing your brain past the tendency to fixate on your first idea. And that is when you say, how do I draw the creativity out of my team? And that's what you mean? Oh, I can definitely help you draw more than one idea out of your team members, right? And that's practical. It's pragmatic. And there's simple tools to do that. As long as creativity is artistry or theatrical or, you know, uh, charisma or other things, I agree with you. It's going to be difficult. And I don't know that that's, that's a natural trait that everybody possesses. The ability to, to be more fluent and more facile at generating options is something that everybody can do. It's just... It's a matter of practice. And that for us is a big reframe with a lot of this book. It's innovation should be a practice. It should be something you're doing every day. If you think innovation, you think about the hackathon or the sprints. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love workshops. That's great. <laughs> Part of my bread and butter. But if you only think in terms of moments rather than uh, a daily practice, you shouldn't be sh surprised when your innovation efforts fall short. That is a brilliant definition from a seven-year-old. Creativity is doing more than the first thing you think of. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ray, we got to get her on our podcast. Yeah, no, we got to find her on the seven-year-old. If you want, I'll compliment it with my other favorite definition, which is Arthur Kessler, the Hungarian philosopher. He called creativity the collision of apparently unrelated frames of reference. 
which is which is brilliant and beautiful. If you think about where creativity comes from, it comes from unexpected. Our, our imaginations are actually triggered by unexpected input. And that's what designers call inspiration, right? They go get inspiration. My wife's a fashion designer and she goes to Paris. And I, I joked when I was in finance, you're just getting macarons. That's a boondoggle. We do that too, but we don't call it inspiration, right? And she's like, no, no, no. She comes back and she's inspired with all these textures and colors and patterns and et cetera. And I realized as I started, to, you know, I've been at the D school now 13 years. So I start teaching at the D school. This is a method, a systematic method for seeking unexpected input. But you know, for a long time as a financial analyst, I didn't have any, I couldn't put inspiration in a cell in the spreadsheet, right? It, there's, it's, I can't compute it. I don't know how you value it. Or the macros on that. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. No, it's, you get like these circular references. It circular references, right? Circular. Yeah. But what you have to do is you have to recognize, wow, when I, when I need, you know, but going mashing together, not to be too meta, but mashing Kessler with the seventh grader, if you know that creativity is doing more than the first thing you think of, and you know that creativity is the collision of apparent unrelated frames of reference, then a creative person is an individual who routinely seeks out the unexpected. Boom. Wow. Kessler meets wow. generation alpha individual means symbolic systems major at Stanford. Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Inside joke. Anyways, uh, I thought I'd jump there. But hey, what? what okay. So, so a lot of this is diversity of thought, the volume of diversity of ideas, bringing it together. You have a structured approach with Stanford, you know, pretty much codified, which is the ideation process and design thinking, right? We've got the greats of Tom Kelly. We got you. We've got other folks popping in here talking about all these areas. Uh, but then the pandemic hits, right? And we're sitting behind a screen and yeah. people are like, we can be creative, like remotely, I mean, how did that pan out? Did it work? Um, do we still have that serendipity of, you know, being able to bump into someone? Uh, is that a factor or did it not even matter? Like you had more free time to yourself, less distractions. Like how did that work? Yeah, I, th I think there's a couple of ways to take the question. It's a great question, Ray. I think on the one hand, uh, the pandemic represents probably one of the greatest unfulfilled opportunities for creativity that we've seen recently. Um, and yet for many people, you know, if you look at innovation rates, they've gone down during the pandemic. Productivity has increased. Innovation's gone down. Wow. And if you think about why that is, there are yeah. different kinds of relationships and organizations. It turns out my friend uh, Charles O'Reilly, Michael Arena have done some fascinating research where they basically determine if you think about kind of the life cycle of an idea, you've got kind of ideation, you've got incubation, and then you've got scaling very, very generally to put it broadly. And what, what they found was the kinds of relationships that are required to do those activities are different, right? Very broadly speaking, you have bonded relationships, tight knit groups of people, and they're really good at incubating. Okay. Then you have what they call bridge relationships, which are weaker ties. And they're actually really important for both ideation and scaling because there's influence in the organization and there's diversity of perspective. Well, what happened during the pandemic is bonded relationships actually strengthened, but bridge relationships were eroded. Yep. And so our ability to ideate and our ability to scale actually was diminished significantly. But there's no. Uh, and so people blame that on, man, I just wish we get back to the conference room. And then you say that and everybody goes, wait, I never loved the conference room. So what gives? Right. <laughs> For us, that's where the, the challenge actually is how we've been defining productivity. Innovation is inherently not efficient. You're not gonna you're not gonna become more efficient at innovation. The question is, how do you become more effective? 
And yet all of our heuristics and biases and tendencies are to think in terms of efficiency. So for example, if you were to see me playing the violin, am I working? If you walk by my office and I'm playing the violin, you would think that guy's a slacker, but you know who played the violin when he got stuck? Albert Einstein. Einstein, yeah. Yeah. And, and he's working, right? If you were to see me taking a walk, would you say I'm not working? Well, you know who takes a walk? Joyce Carol Oates. Every time she's stuck on a, you know, a narrative twist in one of her books, she says, there's always an idea waiting for me on the hill at the back of my house, right? Which is a very poetic way of saying she goes on a walk. But the point is, we have these natural biases towards and against certain ways of working, right? We have exceedingly narrow definitions of what productive looks like. You look like some, you look at somebody like uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, most eminent architect of the 20th century. Most of his coworkers said he napped twice a day, twice a day, <laughs> right? Well, we're, not we're, not we're not I'm a slacker, right? <laughs> yeah. We're not getting our ideas, but hey, you know, that's a very good point. Like I remember reading this thing from, uh, Mike Arena, as well as, uh, as Charles O'Reilly. And uh, you're on mute, I think. So, uh, but yeah, what was really interesting was, was this notion that the single largest behavioral shift among employees working virtually was a statistically significant decline in curiosity. Yeah. That is crazy. Wow. Isn't that that is just crazy. Yeah. Think about that. And if you think about going back to this idea of imagination is triggered by the unexpected, the source to seek the unexpected is actually curiosity, right? Mm, so right. It's, it's no surprise that that went down. But by the way, I mean, think about right now, if you, if the three of us are in a conference room, what are the cognitive inputs available to us? It's basically what's in our heads and what's on the walls, right? Well, if you think about where we are right now, what are the cognitive inputs available to us? Well, what's in our heads? Same, right? So that, you know, just like doing a math problem, right? Cross both of those out on both sides of the equal sign. But then when you look around, what do you see in your space? It's totally different than when I look around, right? I'm looking at the back of Vala's book. I'm like, what books are there, right? What is the, what is the Mark Binioff book have to say about this, right? And so if you think about the, the diversity the of, of potential cognitive kind of conceptual building blocks available to us collectively, it's astronomically better in a remote environment. And yet we do this, we go, the only thing that matters is right here, right? And I'm going to sit here and I'm going to type away and I'm going to answer Slack messages and I'm going to get to inbox zero. And I go, that's great, great productive strategies. Is it yep. effective? Yeah. No, the answer is no. Know. Categorically no. In your book, uh, you teach readers uh, uh, how to overcome dangerous thinking gaps, how to trick your brain to be more creative, how to find inspiration in unexpected places. Can you talk about like the dangerous thinking uh, traps yeah. and also tricking your brain to, to be to be more creative? Those those two spoke spoke to me. Well, OK, so so this is fun. I mean, it goes back to the Einstein bias as one great thing. I'll talk about two real briefly. One is the Einstein effect where you, where you fixate cognitive fixation, right? The tendency to find one thing and fixate on it. Well, the way to trick yourself is shift the goal. Very simply, instead of looking for the right answer, you look for lots of answers. And we call this doing an idea quota, right? Where every single day, mindfully, once per day, you go, okay, what's a problem I'm trying to solve? And then I, re and almost as soon as you do it, you become aware of it, right? But it's like saying, if I mention the word posture, we all go, right? Because there's just like these little reminders, right? Oh yeah, I'm not sitting up straight, right? Well, the same thing, whenever I say what's a problem, you're looking for the right answer, 
people who are trained in idea flows are going, oh yeah, there's no such thing as the right answer. I need to generate volume, right? We call that an idea quota where every day, instead of one, generate 10. Not 10 good ideas, but 10 ideas. ideas. Exactly, exactly. And the good, bad, and different doesn't matter. Illegal, legal, wacky. You know, Steve Jobs used to say to Sir Johnny Ive every day, Johnny, you want to hear a dopey idea? You know? <laughs> and Johnny says most of the time his ideas were terrible, but every once in a while they take the air out of the room and leave us breathless in wonder, right? And so, sorry, I want uh, uh, interview. Oh, you should have done the whole interview in that accent. Oh, <laughs> next time, I'll leave it to my buddy Greg McEwen to do the British accent. But, but, the, but so that's kind of one bias. The other bias I'd mentioned is we have a bias towards experience, right? Is experience good? Unequivocally, we all say yes, right? And is more experience better? Unequivocally, we all say yes. The problem is when the world's changing, which I know it's not right now, but imagine a scenario where the world is changing rapidly. Experience becomes more of a liability because knowledge yeah. of what's worked in the past is not predictive of what's going to work in the future. And so what, how, do you, how do you short circuit that bias, the experience bias? Well, you bring novices onto your team. You know why Beeple sold every day's for $69 million mm. at Christie's? Do you know why he did that? We actually, we kind of dug up the backstory through our network. And it turns out a junior cataloger at Christie's named Megan Doyle had nothing to do. And what? all of her more senior associates were working on the Rothko collections and whatever. Mm. And when she got to the bottom of her inbox, there's this weird message about NFTs and Web3. <laughs> and she said, honestly, I just didn't have anything else to do. So like I took a call with this guy and. And, you know, and then they play, wow. by the way, the, the, the expected value they put on that lot was a hundred dollars when they started thinking about it. We got in late, man. We got in totally late. But, but the point is, I mean, you look at, you look at Lockheed Martin Skunk Works, right? One of the most famous aeronautical developments of the last century was the stealth bomber. Who did that? You go, oh, Skunk Works. It's, they set up this thing. No, actually that's not right. Most of the experienced uh, aeronautics expert at Skunk Works said that Dennis Overhauser, the young kid in the corner reading the obscure Russian math paper because he didn't have anything better to do, they said that this kid should be burned at the stake because they yeah. got slide rules older than this kid because they, you know what they called his project? The Hopeless Diamond. <laughs> There's no way this thing's going to work, right? It's unstable on all three axes. Well, that is true from an aeronautical perspective as long as there's no such thing as computerized stabilization. Right. And so the point is you have expertise and a bias is to overweight the expertise without consideration of new information. And people who can consider new information tend to be younger novices who don't know. Right. I love Linda Hill, my friend. There's an institution on the Dr. East Coast. Linda I can't Hill. remember what it's Linda Hill. She's, she's on our show. Yeah. Oh, I can't remember where she teaches. It's like called the Stanford of the East, I think. It's I can't remember. Oh, OK. Anyway, we won't put you through that table. Marvard, <laughs> it, it's like Marvard. I don't know. I've never. Anyway. Um, but one thing that she does, Linda does, which is amazing, is she always brings a young person onto her writing team. Yes, she right? does. Like a 22 year old. Yeah. And the last time I talked to Linda, we're, we're having a conversation about the book and she's got this like charcoal drawing of a octopus in the back <laughs> of her, you know, and I was like, Linda, what is the octopus? She goes, oh, actually, I would love to ask you about this. My, my 22 year old collaborator offered it to me as a metaphor for organizational life. And she held up. She's like, does it make you think of anything? And I was like, 
I mean, set aside the octopus. Yeah. How incredible that she dedicated that valuable place of her real estate to this obscure metaphor that a 22-year-old had given her, right? Unbelievable. That's yeah. incredible. But, but it's a way yeah. for her to short circuit. She's an experienced author. She knows a lot about organizations. Yeah. And the tendency is to lean on that rather than explore new things. And so all that say, those are a couple short ways to short circuit. There's a lot more, obviously, but I those are probably that. my favorite. Linda was, Linda was on our show. I have her book back here. And she was, she's she was amazing. amazing. She's yeah. really amazing. So, so, so I don't know. Is it Einstein who said creativity is intelligence having fun? Because I can tell yeah. you're having fun. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, tell us about just briefly like teaching design at Stanford and being in front of all these. Yeah, your GSP beginners mindsets. Like, that's like the in, ultimate incredible ambition. Like how how energizing is it for you to in, be in front of future innovators and business yeah. leaders? And must be it, amazing. It's an incredible privilege. I mean, especially in the accelerator context, I've had the, the privilege of getting oh, to yeah. run the accelerator with my co-author Perry for the last six years or so. And working with young entrepreneurs is like working with nuclear power plants. I mean, they, you just bombard them, right? They've got this energy, this ability to create kind of non-Newtonian returns. That's really fun. The other thing I love is working with um, young people and helping them discover. I teach a class called Transformative Design with a legendary professor, Dr. Bernie Roth. Yes. And Bernie and I do a class where that's all about turning design onto your own life and your own values. And we, we do projects around, for example, creating value and being alignment. Because a lot of students, just like they go to the chiropractor, they're all misaligned. They come to campus and all of a sudden, because I'm good at computer science, I guess I have to be a computer scientist. We go, well, is that where your passion is? Is that where your gifting is? You know, And we help students. We, we have a series of what we call self-discovery missions. We can walk through them one day. But a bunch of missions whereby... Wait, let's take a step back. This is Launchpad, the accelerator, right? This is that you're getting well, well, what I was just talking about is actually called uh, Transformative Design. Oh, transformative Design? Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. And it's a class for graduate students, PhDs, undergrads. But it's really for folks who go, you know what? There's something out of alignment with where I am and where I want to be, not in terms of, I mean, it could involve career, but it could be relationally, but it's using the same radical problem solving process called design thinking that we've used to launch products and services, but instead to reinvent, wow. to, to kind of turn on the most important design project of all, which is you. Yeah. yeah. Did someone in your career, in your life, uh, help you be better aligned in terms of your mission and your purpose? Or is this something you learned by collaborating with some of the best thinkers in the world? Yeah, well, that's a great, that's a really great question. Um, I have had the good fortune of having some exceptional mentors, uh, wow. people like David Kelly, who regularly meet with me. Um, people like the late, great, uh, Bill Meehan is an absolute legend who is a dear friend and, and mentor. Uh, my father also is a, is a hero of mine and he's somebody who I routinely lean upon and ask for advice. I'd say one thing that actually I learned from Bill Meehan several years ago, um, which has always stuck with me. And it's a great kind of heuristic for anybody who's hoping to, uh, achieve meaningful work and life, uh, outcomes. He told me, one day per month, you should devote to meeting with mentors. One day a month. Wow. And I mean, I don't, and it's not like necessarily a, you know, KPI per se, but having a goal, I would say at that time when he told me that several years ago, I was not even aware of, I wasn't tracking. Am I meeting with people who can be influential in my life? I mean, they might be influential from a business perspective, from a sure. deal perspective, but to talk about the things I'm going through or thinking about or challenges I'm facing, I hadn't really prioritized that. 
And that piece of advice, actually, it caused me to kind of build a personal board of advisors and actually systematize a series of people who I deeply admire. And I, and I actually reached out to him. I said, I admire the way you approach your life and your work and your family. And I'd like to ask if you'd be willing to meet with me on a semi-regular basis to talk about, I don't even know what, but hmm. I feel it's important to carve out that space. And I've been fortunate to have a lot of really wonderful people invest in me. That's awesome. Um, and so it's, it's to me, I, I, would, I would credit the insight that it's worth prioritizing almost as much as any individual input along the way of which there are myriad, many of which are, have been incredibly impactful to me. But just the meta awareness of if you're not carving out time for uh, input, and this is true in design, it's true in problem solving, it's true in our lives. If you're not carving out the space, then all that space is going to get gobbled up with to do's. Yeah and deadlines and, you know, fire drills and things like that. And you'll find yourself going, well, I, I mean, I, I don't have any time to, well, you have to turn, a lot of people are victims of their calendar. This is a, this is a bit yeah. of a, kind of a pet peeve of mine. I oh, think you have, to, you have yeah. to wield your calendar almost as a weapon, right? You know, it's funny. I think Ray and I do this show and we do it Friday. For me, it's Friday afternoon mm. where everyone's decompress, decompressing on looking forward to the weekend. We're this is the up. highlight of my week. And I've got a page of notes just with your segment. Mm. So, you know, it's not an official mentorship process, but I got to tell you, like you're expanding my mind mm. and, and you're filling my Twitter feed for tonight. With ha, there you go. <laughs> brilliant. Brilliant. So, no, I, I would, I'd say the same thing, Bala. I mean, I actually, because of the book, one of the things I know, I have four daughters and one of the things I noticed is there's not a lot of stories of amazing women innovators. It's there. Or, and, and by the way, I read a book called genius or, or habits of genius by this uh, Dartmouth or Yale or Princeton East coast professor. I don't mean to diminish. I just don't know the detail. Um, us West coasters. We, we don't know this stuff. Right. Was it the but, uh, but he mentioned that there was a survey of, you know, uh, men and women, young and old, and they ask, who are the top 10 greatest thinkers of all time? On average, a woman appeared at number eight for the first time. For the first time. Wow. Number eight. And he said, even among highly educated women, it was like number seven on their list. And, and anyway, so I, and I found that I, I want to have a balanced book. I want to have, and forget a book. I want to have a balanced kind of repository of stories to draw from because you can't tell stories you don't know. And so what I started doing was I said, okay, I got with my friend, Mar Hershenson, who's a wonderful VC and engineer and entrepreneur. I said, Mar, would you interview female founders with me? And for a year, we just interviewed female founders. We put some up as a podcast, but for me, all that say, I, I, resonate with you. For me, it became the highlight of my week. It became the thing that I looked forward to the most. And part of it is it's just my job to listen. You know, as a teacher, and you all know this too, as senior executives, most of the time when you show up in a meeting, your job is to talk and, or or, your job is to share the knowledge you have. That's what people are looking for. And what I love about a podcast format, what you guys have here for yourself, what I have with Mar is the job is to listen. And I realized, wow, an hour where where my primary goal is to learn from someone else rather than to express something I know. It's the best. Yeah, it is the best. It's a privilege. And staying teachable, I think, is probably the most important skill. Mm. And you know, as you get older, you know, it's harder. Uh, And and like you said, experience can can be a liability. So for us, this is one hour of being students, and uh, and then having exceptional folks like yourself volunteer time. And generosity to to have you know your shared wisdom and and then what Ray and I do is try to do our best to share 
our learnings from you with our with our network and and yep. uh, so it's 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 definitely the highlight of my week. So that's cool. So, that's cool. Anyway, sorry, Ray. Yeah, oh no, this has been great. We're here with Jeremy Utley, author of Idea Flow. Get the book now if you haven't. More importantly, Jeremy's at the uh, GS School, GSB. Not not to be confused with some other school on the East Coast, GSB. <laughs> And of course, the D School, which is uh, Stanford's crown jewel. So thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, if you stick around afterwards, we will connect. So take care. Congratulations on the book, Jeremy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers. Wow. Definitely a CCE speaker. Oh, <laughs> we should both, have like, you know, at our conference. Both are amazing. Yeah. But so. yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it's, uh, it's just, you know, it, there's so many lessons in his book beyond just building the innovation pipeline, but the, it's having the right mindset. And as Bobby Knight, uh, famous basketball coach, you know, be in a position to be in a position to score. It's positioning yourself to take advantage of those unexpected areas where innovation ideas can be. Uh, this was episode 310. Next week is episode 311. We'll have George Matthew, Managing Director of Insights Par Insight Partners. Matt Mayberry, author of Culture is the Way. Carol Kaufman, assistant professor at Harvard Medical School, founder of Institute of Coaching, and David Nobel, leadership coach and advisor. Four big brains for episode 11. So get your popcorn uh, and buckle your seatbelts. It's going to be an amazing show. Ray, your final thoughts on, on today's episode. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean, it was amazing watching Miguel's journey. I mean, he found the thing that he really enjoyed, which is really um, service technology and the ability to get back to startups. And, and that's, you know, that's where it comes, right? I've, I've watched Miguel masterfully come up with ideas and I'm thinking like, he probably uses stuff in Ideaful and doesn't know it, right? It, it's sitting here and, and really hearing like, um, I mean, maybe there's a way to value companies based on idea flow, right? Like um, based on this, we think that your market cap is really this and your valuation should be this because you're not generating enough ideas. And I'm sure like Jeremy's probably like figured this out already and didn't tell us, but he's probably got this index in the back end, like he's got a whole venture fund in the back that we don't know about. But, but that's actually where I see this is like, you know, the companies who aren't in innovating enough, I mean, they die. We see this, we see this happen, right? We see that the top market cap companies of every decade have shifted and changed. And at one point they had big R and D facilities. They had big corporate research. And then, oh, wait, we have to actually commercialize our corporate research. And then you watch it go, oh, like, you know, it's just falling apart, right? And it's it's that wave and cycle. And, and it's really a question of like, how do you keep that level of innovation? And, and we're lucky here. You're at 128. I'm here in the Valley. You know, Jeremy taught out in UT, like Austin. I mean, these are these are tech centers, right? Totally. The more we can build these tech centers and in, in, in opportunity zones and other areas, like the more we can actually spread that around the country to create those innovators that I think Jeremy was hoping to get to that, that diversity of innovation. And I think these OZs are going to be playing a role uh, in, in terms of actually creating these centers. Like we see Las Vegas emerging. Rally Durham is an area. South Florida is, is kind of an area that's picking up, right? And, and, you know, Denver has been a place near Boulder of creating that level of innovation and getting that concentration, I think is going to be interesting. But anyways, yeah, this is episode Amazing. 310. So happy Friday, everybody. Thanks, everyone. If it's Friday's Disrupt TV, we'll see you next week. Cheers, everyone.